And welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven. And this is a podcast all about social work and social care with news, guests, opinions. Now, many thanks to all of you who support this podcast, which is now the number one social work podcast in the UK. And we can be heard on iTunes, you can download it there, you can download it from Stitcher, Podfeed, and you can give your feedback on SpeakPipe, which is a one-click service right beside every podcast, every blog on the website. And just to show uh, that uh, not all of you agree with me, which is terrific, I think, thanks, it's good opinion and debate, uh, here's a SpeakPipe message who disagrees with my views that social workers need a better image in the media. Now, this was Sheena Felton who left this message. This is not the time to have a positive image about social work. There is no positive image story to be told of children's social work. It is a profession that is in crisis and is not a place where good social workers can remain in the profession. The report from the kids' company and the social justice says it all. That is the story that the media need to be hearing and pressures made on the government to change the system. Please use SpeakPipe for your views. I want to hear them. That's the whole point of a debate. Now, today's podcast starts a new occasional series of practice discussions. And today it will be Jenny Randall and David Akinsanya who are going to talk about looked after children and looking at aspects of practice. Now Jenny has just been the recipient uh, of the Lifetime Achievement Award at the annual Social Work Awards, which is a marvellous accolade for her. And David Akinsanya, who's her training partner, is a filmmaker and a champion of looked after children. And he's very well known nationally for speaking out and advocating better services for looked after children. Okay, Jenny, David, very welcome to the podcast, both of you. Um, Now, you've both been absolutely steeped in working with looked after young people now for years. And what I'm most interested in to start with, and also from the listener's point of view, is just take it back maybe 10 or 15 years. Could you sort of give us a bit of your views about how services have changed, the experience of being looked after has changed, what the whole kind of landscape is like for the young person these days who's looked after? Um, Just wherever you want to go, wherever you want to start with that one. Well, I'll start, if you like, from the social worker's point of view. Having worked recently in a local authority uh, looked after children's team, I would say the major thing is that the services have become completely sort of fragmented. It's all very short-term based work. Um, Social workers have become more like case managers than directly involved in a relationship-based piece of work with the child and their family. And I don't think that that is providing a 
good service to children to whom we are parents, corporate parents, okay, we're in it with, with a number of other people, but we do have a parenting role, and I think on that sort of fragmented short-term basis, it is very difficult to prepare children for adulthood. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what David would think about that. Well, I mean, I, I'd just like to go back probably a little bit further, actually, David, and talk about, you know, the difference between when I was in care and what is happening now. And, you know, agreeing with Jenny on the whole fragmented thing, I, you know, the fact that nowadays, you know, a child might be dealing with several different agencies and organisations and voluntary organisations and service providers. And what you get the impression of is, is that social workers don't get their hands dirty anymore. They are in the office directing services, buying services, you know, whatever. But they're actually not out there with the client. Um, and, you know, again, you know, the whole system of the way we no longer have kind of a backup of good residential care. Um, there's very little of it. It's very expensive and it's privatised. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that there is many choices for young people now as there were when I was in care. I mean, it's a bit more than 15 years, though, sadly. OK, but just pick up on that from the both of you, if I might, because uh, you've obviously told a, a very sort of true story there that has shifted hugely into fostering um, mm -hmm. away from residential. And when you were um, first starting out, David, in your case, experiencing the, the, the whole system and Jenny, in your case, managing the system, I mean, residential care was dominant, I believe, wasn't it? So, I mean, has this changed people's expectations uh, well, whose expectations? I mean, um, it's changed social workers' expectations in as much as social workers, I think, now have the expectation that if they bring a child into care, that child will go wherever there is a vacancy, whether that is the right place for the child to be, the right area, the right kind of therapeutic and social work input to that child, it will be a vacancy. Mm -hmm. And I think the matching um, has, has largely gone out of the window. I know that you know there are people who will say, we try very hard to match, and yes, they do, but the resources and the choices are simply not there. And people will look at me very strangely uh, when I say, when I was a social worker and now we're going back sort of 30 odd years, long, uh, quite a long time back, there was a huge choice for me as a social worker, which I would have taken together with the child that I was placing very often. And for example, I per perhaps would have visited three or four residential facilities with the child and on my own before we made the decision about how whether or not that was the right and most appropriate placement for that child and some of that would have been about how the child felt about it mm. and now that sort of process is completely alien to today's social work mm. world Okay, just follow, following that up a little bit, David, I mean, the, you've obviously had the experience of being in care yourself, but also you've been steeped in strategic work since, you've been steeped in national initiatives, you've, you've talked to people all over the place, as well as lots of young people, and I know you've made films about it as well, but 
what Jenny says, does that resonate with you from, if you like, from a consumer's point of view? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, what, you know, the one thing that really hits me these days, David, is when you see how many, I mean, just across Twitter, um, in, in news packages, um, in documentaries, how desperate they are to find foster carers. And, and, you know, I mean, if you see the figures in London for how many foster carers are needed and how many kids there are that are looking for foster homes, the numbers just don't add up. And I think what we've done is we've invested far too heavily in this whole fostering world when actually fostering isn't appropriate for all children. Actually living in a family home when you come from a family home where there's been a lot of difficulties, where you might need professional care, you're not going to get that from foster carers. They are providing a roof over your head. Um, and, you know, yes, all right, so we do train foster carers and support foster carers better now, but that's only because we had to. Some of these kids, and I'm certainly owning up myself and saying what I needed at very many stages in my childhood was professional care from people who were dealing with the whole of me, not just my behaviour, not just my education. You do know what I mean? You needed to, I felt that things have got a lot worse for kids in care, um, especially when you think of stability, um, building relationships, all of those things have gone out the window because kids move about too much now. Okay. Now, Jenny, you were recently the recipient of, at the National Social Work uh, Awards of a Lifetime Achievement Award, which is a fabulous thing. Actually, you know, you voted in on uh, from the whole country, um, which means that you're in a fairly unique position to have been recognized by your peers and also have, you know, as it were, a, a, a working lifetime of experience under your belt. Now, you said it yourself, and I'm sure you would agree, it's not all doom and gloom in the sense that there are pockets of very good practice around. Would you like to just say a few things about some of the good points, some of the good practice you've seen before I come back to David about the issues he's just raised? Oh, I think there are uh, pockets of good practice. I mean, I, I know David was talking about fostering just now. Um, I can think of foster parents that I know personally who, who've worked with young people who I was the social worker to, um, who provide amazing uh, proper home which will go on well past uh, the child's period in care, well past 18, who have children that they've worked with coming back to them in their 20s, for whom the, the, they are the family and they become the family well into the next generation um, and so on. And, you know, there are, um, there are lots of those people working out there. There are lots of, of social workers who are trying, and I have to say against the odds, to provide good, consistent uh, care for, for young people that they're working with. Um, but I think that my, my big point would be that I think it is they are working against the grain of... Uh, of uh, accepted practice in in social work departments and that is very difficult um, to do that and you need to be a very particular brave and courageous sort of person to be putting your career on the line sometimes to be doing what you think is right for the young people in your care I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but what I'm saying is I think it's a very difficult thing to do for social workers. And, and can I just add to that, David? I've always said that I think that there are only limited people out there who are able, capable, willing, appropriate, 
and have got room to become foster carers. And at the moment, we really are scraping the barrel in terms of that's what we need because we've got no other placements for them and we rely so heavily on fostering that actually residential care is being seen as being a place where you just hold kids while you wait to foster them. I want to see residential care as an option. As a serious option. It's a serious option. Yeah, yeah David, let me, let me pursue that a little bit with you because I was going to ask about that anyway from your previous comments that um, in my reading of that was the same as I actually feel myself is that when there was a big purge on residential care, mm. um, it seemed that we, a lot of people are saying we threw the baby out with the bathwater, if you like. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and what I can do is give you a little bit of an exclusive here, David. Mm. I, was with, I was with Edward Timpson the other day. And I raised this issue with him and he says that actually there are some government are taking some very serious looks into how they can go, but how they can actually include residential as being something of a significance again, because I think they're hearing what lots of people are saying. There's no point. We know fostering is better if it works for the child and it's all the rest of it. But there's no point in saying that if the child is just going to go there, create a crisis. It's no skin off the foster carer's nose to throw the kids out because they know they'll be replaced with another kid soon because they're so desperate for foster carers. And there's no incentive there for these kids to actually stay and settle and stay in the same school. They just seem to be moving from crisis to crisis. In that instance, I would much rather have a child have stability in a good residential children's home that is run by staff that are going to stay there, that are going to be well paid, where the shift system actually works for the kids and not the staff and all those sorts of things. I'd much rather have residential places as well as fostering, as well as adoption. Okay. So to do that, I think we've got to um, revisit some some of the social work skills that we've uh, uh, kind of put on the back burner or forgotten about. Mm. Because res some, uh, there's a lot of residential care at the moment, which is very small, two or three children in a house, in a street, which is rather closer to foster care than residential care and I think one of the skills that we need to revisit in a big way if we're going to have good therapeutic residential care are group work skills because one of the things that good therapeutic residential care does is it uses the group, it uses the group environment, the people in it and, uh, and that's a skill that's long been lost in, in social work. And, and David, I'm, I'm on record as saying this, and I've always said this, the best time of my childhood in care was in a small family group home with one major person running the place with a couple of cleaners, couple of cooks and staff who came in on shifts to cover when the, you know, when the lead person wasn't around. And, and that worked, and I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of people who are in that children's home with me, and we all found that one of the best ways, one of the best experiences of our childhood through the care system. Because don't forget, look, social work goes around and around in fashions and trends. And, you know, the trend on fostering has been around for too long and, and residential has suffered. That's all right to have these trends as long as in the background, you know, we're actually providing stable long-term placements for kids. Let's not forget that there's no, there's no interest in politicians in getting this right because they've only got five years. Five years is only a small part of a child's life, you know. And, and so I, what I'm saying is that I just don't think that we just go around with all these political arguments and the bottom line is we're not providing stability and that's what's got to be most important. And certainly our, I mean our experience from uh, the Corv Lane reunion um, for the children's home that I ran in, 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 in Essex, 
is that you know, we, we did a reunion with those, those young people who lived there in a very stable group environment. And what happened, in fact, was that they have mirrored the, a, a family, but a family moving on and growing up. So they share information about their, their children and their grandchildren. They keep in communication with each other. They're up to date with each other's lives. But also when we brought them back together, they were able to share the good and bad moments of their childhood together. They were able to revisit their history because we were able to give them that sort of stability yeah. that mirrors a family situation. And Anne-Marie earlier, who was one of uh, uh, um, the young people, now an adult, who lived there, said, this was my family. This was my family for eight years. And as such, were these people and these memories were very important to me. Now, I think we can give people that in residential care, which would be better than short-term foster care and constant moving around. Okay. Even, if it, even if it means that you stay in the same school, David. Do you know okay. what I mean? Because these kids are moving schools as well. That's a whole, you know, can you imagine the social implications to a young person and moving school so often? Oh, of course. I mean, I totally understand what disruption that can cause. Let me draw you back a little bit, both of you. Firstly, just I'll take you back a few, a few minutes, David, just to mention that Edward Timpson is the Secretary of State for Children and Families. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. It, no, well, in the UK. It's only that, that, that this podcast gets listened to in about 60 countries. Okay, and so we have to sort of explain, you know, a little bit about who we're talking about. But on the other hand, would you agree with me that it's not necessarily social workers that we need to be looking to. It's all the whole social care profession uh, who are responsible in a lot of ways. And maybe even the voluntary sector to a large degree that do much of the actual direct work with young people. Well, this is the problem, David. I mean, Jenny mentioned it earlier on. This is the fragmentation that's happened in the last few years. I mean, you used to be, you know, if a child was in care in Essex, I used to know that I could ring up Essex Social Services and I could talk to someone and get through to that person. Now you have to go through several different organisations and voluntary organisations. And, and then you've got the private uh, profit-making companies that are running small establishments as well. And I think that it's almost like there isn't a union of, you know, it, the adults, and when I was a kid, we had the Who Cares movement, and that was adults who work with kids in care, and kids in care themselves, and we came together, and we campaigned, and we, nowadays, a lot of the campaigns that are being done, are being done by organisations that are, their, their sole funding relies on government supporting the projects that they're running for kids in care. Do you know what I mean? And I just think that it's it's almost like there isn't a, a major voice now speaking for the betterment of the whole of the services that are being provided for kids in care because it's so fragmented. And if you as a social worker um, are have become a case manager, which for many looked after children social workers, that's what they do, you don't have that personal relationship with a child anymore. And if even in cases I can think of where you actually begin to develop that the structure of the uh, of the local authority services will prevent you carrying that through and going back to those very good foster carers that I talked about earlier just reminds me of and this is an absolute classic example this is a child who 
I had a relationship with for three years. I'm going through some quite difficult things to do with his family. And I am approached by the manager of a leaving care team who says, this child is coming over to my team next week. And I say, why? And she says, because he's 15 and three quarters. So at that point, he has to go over to a leaving care team. Where's the continuity in that? There's no continuity. There is no consideration of where you're at in working with that child and what that child needs at any particular point in time. And that is one simple um, and, and that is a specific thing of 15 and three quarters. People of very different ages and very different maturities. Yeah, this child especially, is about 12. Right, exactly. <laughs> especially with kids who might be encountering the care system that have, they might have de delayed development. I mean, I know of a boy, you know, who, who wasn't ready to leave care at 19. No one had discovered that he was suffering, that he had fetal alcohol syndrome because no one had spent enough time with him or cared enough about him to investigate what was wrong with him. They just thought he was some dumb kid. And the bottom line is that once they assessed that he did have this, then he was continued support. But you have to fight for that, David. Do you know what I mean? Let me move you on a little bit here because I'm taking very carefully what you're saying. What, what about the argument, for example, that if you go into hospital and there's a consultant who's overviewing your case, but it's actually the nurses and the junior doctors that do the work, but the consultant's responsible. Now, if you took that model into social work, would that not be something of similar ilk? Would it? No, because that, I mean, the medical model is about, you know, uh, going in, diagnosis, treatment and coming out the other end and you go back to your, your own life. We're talking about children for whom the um, local authority is their parent and many of them do not have anything outside of that. We're talking about your upbringing, um, and, you know, it's a very different, your whole world, everything about you. Okay, well, look, let me let me develop that a little bit because, I, I mean, I just wanted to get your answer on that one. So if, for example, Jenny, I know, for example, uh, one of the uh, residential units that you ran, you were and are still very proud of the fact that it was essentially, um, if you like, a supermarket of disciplines, that you could pull in people to work with the young people who were living there from all different needs and all different disciplines. And, you know, it was an as and when thing, but you had access to, whether it was psychology or access to social work, you had access to law, you had access to, you know, uh, education, whatever it was. One stop Okay. In a sense, you know, forget the words medical model, but just look at the supermarket idea that that is a family home because the parents and the family are responsible for bringing in anybody to suit the needs of the child at that moment. And so they would liaise with the school. They would liaise with GPs. They would deal with inoculations, hearing tests, eye tests, you name it, tests. The parents would be the, the pivot. And so in a sense, you know, it, it, it is a multidisciplinary approach and and you have advocated it and you actually successfully delivered it to be quite fair over a number of years didn't you yes i mean certainly that was the core blame project model um i think that that's exactly right i mean i think the thing about the core blame project model was a it was very small 
be the, all the staff, whether they were working in the juvenile justice bit, the residential bit, the providing social work services, looking for lodgings, looking for workplaces, whatever it is they were doing, they were all part of a whole and we spent a lot of a lot of things we did collectively exactly as a family would. We went on holiday together, they joined in the parties, people swapped roles, they all spent Christmas Day together. It was very much almost, I mean, a family, but bigger than that, almost like a sort of commune, commune model in a way, um, where everybody could swap roles and understood about each other's tasks. So that a child who may need different bits of the service was actually going to somebody that they knew and who knew them and who already had a relationship with them before they had to deal with a specific problem. Let me ask you both then, finally, kind of asking maybe two minutes each, starting with Jenny. Uh, imagine that here around me there's half a dozen social workers. You can say, if you like, starting out in the profession, whatever, interested probably in working with looked after young people. I would like to see what, we've talked a lot about challenges and that's quite right because you've seen your fair share over the years, both of you. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you think the positives are about working with looked after young people, what can be got out of it and what you would encourage people to look for and to develop as their profession grows, as their own experience in the job grows. Jenny, how would you look to start that? I, for me, if um, the thing that I got the most pleasure out of is seeing young people grow up, grow through the problems and become functioning adults with their own children and be happy. Um, and that, you know, so developing some kind of autonomy in the world as, as adults, that's, for me, the, 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 what I was working towards and the thing that I had the most pleasure out of. If what, I, what, can I just interrupt you a sec? Could you also say what part, what good part a good social worker can play in that? I was going to say, I think if I was going to give a, a new, new social worker a bit of a, advice, I would say that the skill they need to develop is to be able to put themselves in that child or that family or that parent's shoes. What you need as a social worker, you can't experience everything that everybody else experiences, but you can begin to develop the skill of listening to people and beginning to understand and imagine yourself in their position. And if you can begin to get even partway towards how they feel in their world, then actually you're going to do a very much better job as a social worker because everything you do will be framed within their world and not yours. And sometimes the bad side of that means that you've got to be able to feel people's pain and anguish and take it on board and work with it. And that is a very difficult thing to do and it is not a skill that you learn in two minutes. And that would be my, my, my advice to them. Develop that and you will be a good social worker. Thanks, Jenny. David, how would you like to conclude? Um, well, I would say, um, I would say 
that if I was someone going into social work now, if I was advising someone going into social work now from a child in care's point of view, I would say, get your hands dirty, get away from behind your desk, go and make a relationship with that young person so that when you're phoning up, I'll just give you a quick example. I had one kid who I looked after and anytime social workers had bad news to give him, they would make sure that I was there because he wouldn't kick off. And the reason why he wouldn't kick off was because he knew I cared about him and he was embarrassed to do that in front of me. Um, and I, I, I just think that social workers need to be able to, um, as, as Jenny said, empathise with the person, not patronise. Empathy is a really big thing. And, and I don't think most social workers come into, their, come into this job to sit buying services from behind a computer desk. I think it's about working with people's social work. And, and I think that's what you've got to do. You've got to understand these people socially and you've got to be able to repair their lives as best you can. Okay, well, that's terrific and lovely to talk to both of you as always. And I'm sure sometime in the future, I'd love to come back and carry it on with everything that's coming between now and then under, you know, what's under your belts between now and then. Anything you're particularly doing, the two of you? Because I know you offer training, both of you as a pair, and that's a very good experiential learning service you do. So anything coming up you're particularly doing? Um, well, we're, do we're, we're doing a, our first talk to the uh, new Frontline uh, uh, course, which is running out of Bedford University, which we're doing together. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm continuing to do my campaign. And I know Jenny's got a few reunions and things that she might be thinking about doing in the future. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and also I'm looking into how we might start a campaign about getting children's history and memories properly archived when they've been in local authority children's homes um, mm. which I think is very important because it's actually better done in some of the private voluntary and therapeutic settings in local authorities it's very poorly done and um, you know children's homes are knocked down even so there's not even a gate to go and look over and say this is where I live so I'm looking at, at the moment at getting a campaign going so that it is that children's history and memories are routinely archived by local authorities. Okay, well, thank you both very much indeed. Speak to you soon. Thanks. Thanks thank you. Bye. bye. Now, I'm also going to let you hear today a BBC interview that I gave on the topic of the week, which was Rolf Harris and the whole issue of celebrity abusers and what that means to child protection. Joining us now is David Niven, a child protection expert and the former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. Good morning, David. Morning, Paul. First of all, please, can I get your reaction to the Rolf Harris conviction? Well, obviously, um, I'm pleased um, as much as anything for the victims um, because it, it sort of shows that um, their time wasn't wasted in coming forward. They had to relive all of that again. He put them through it. He didn't plead guilty, and therefore they had to relive everything. And so in terms of their sort of mental health, as it were, I'm, I'm very pleased that they got some kind of closure at least. But, of course, as we heard earlier on from people, unfortunately, this makes it difficult, doesn't it, for people who have been abused to actually come forward because they think that this is what's going to happen, is it's going to be years and then having to go through a court case and relive it all over again. I know, I know. I'm afraid there's just no getting around that if the, um, if the perpetrator 
who actually is guilty sort of forces everybody to go through a trial like this. It's, it, that is one of the downsides of it. However, on the other side of it, just like your um, piece said there about the NSPCC receiving all these calls, at least this is triggering um, confidence in people to come forward now, thankfully. Um, the only thing I would say is that as most of um, child abuse takes place within the family or the immediate family circle, um, I, I really hope that people um, will consider coming forward as well because it's, it's an, another layer of complications if you think about it, obviously, when you have to speak up against a family member and all the dynamics and all the things mm. that happen because of that. But please, please think of coming forward because not only now are the authorities much, much better at talking to you and getting the information and the sensitivity of it, but you are much, much more likely to be believed now and the ways of taking these things forward are more established. You will get supported, you will get help, and you will be um, regarded as somebody that is um, truthful and honest. Uh, and so I do encourage everybody who's got something simmering from way back to come forward. Historical abuse is something that we still got a huge, big clean-up operation to do in this country. Now, Anna was also um, very frank with us about the guilt she felt that she hadn't come forward, and she did reiterate as a way that she's the victim. She she said she couldn't get over this feeling of guilt sometimes that the person who abused her and her stepsister would have gone on maybe to have abused other other people. Yeah, okay, but I mean, another. I mean, that she came forward. That was the most important thing. People live with that. I mean, we don't know if the person abused others. Yes, we would encourage people to come forward as soon as possible for that very reason. But never, ever would I actually lay guilt on somebody who's been an outright victim like this. Are you expecting many more cases to come forward as a result of not only this verdict but the other verdicts that have been uh, coming through over the last few years? I hope so. Um, because, as I said, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we only see the tip of the iceberg sometimes because of all sorts of complications, the things you've talked about, etc., about people coming forward. I really do hope so, but um, I think we've also got to admit that we live in a society where we're never going to eradicate this. People will take advantage of vulnerable people, children and vulnerable adults, and that will always be the case, and unfortunately, but... We are getting much better at, at dealing with it, much more sophisticated at dealing with it, and much more open as a society about it, accepting that it does happen. And so in that sort of spirit of openness, I think we will see a lot more people coming forward. What do you suggest to people who might be listening to this and who feel that they can't come forward, but what they would like to do is to stop the abuse right now? What can they, what can they say? What can they do? Is there anything? Well, if somebody is actually still being abused and, uh, and hasn't had the courage or the whatever to come forward, the confidence to come forward yet, I mean, the most important thing is to share, um, to find a trusted person, find somebody that you can talk to about it. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be within the family. Just, just find a trusted person and talk it over with them and then hopefully, you know, get, the, get extra courage given to you to actually confront it because... Your, your caller earlier was quite right. Um, people who abuse don't tend to stop at just one person. That, that, that is their inclination, and therefore other people are at risk. And so if you can possibly drag up the confidence to come forward, talk it over with somebody, and help let them help you come forward, let you be supported at least, and feel that the, the whole world is not full of people out to get you. And looking at the other side of this, difficult though it is, what is in place, if anything, for people who have these urges, who may have acted on them, God forbid, but who detest that part of themselves, 
where can they go if they are actively seeking help to fight these dreadful, dreadful urges? Yeah. Well, there are organisations such as the Faithful Foundation who work with perpetrators and, and others, like there's various things that have been imported from Canada, like circles of volunteers who actually will kind of support people who've been convicted of offending to try and stop the reoffending. I mean, for my mind, though, unfortunately, people who are inclined to offend against children like this are the only way I can mirror it is like they're addicts. And unlike addicts who've got substance abuses, these addicts, actually, they're victims or somebody else. It's not themselves. And so not just self-control is enough. We've got to have societal control as well, hence various other exclusion orders and goodness knows what else around them. But the most important thing is, I do think that in order to prevent many, many, many other children being abused, we have to invest in um, therapeutic support and other forms of support for people who just haven't crossed the line yet. And I think that's quite crucial. And even though we distaste, it's distasteful to a lot of people, the idea of supporting people who are perpetrators, I think ultimately it will mean less child victims. Thank you for joining us this morning. Very sobering conversation there with David Niven, a child protection expert and the former chair of the British Association of Social Workers. So I'll let you judge for yourselves, but I just thought it would be good for you to have a listen to that. And then I thought we'd have a little talk about some news. There's a call for a national inquiry at the moment into historic child abuse and it's gathering some momentum. I believe over a hundred social uh, hundred MPs have actually signed uh, a motion so far, and many many organisations up and down the country are adding their voice to this. It seems to be something that uh, is fated to happen, but it's taken so long to actually get there. Now, also, I'd like you to have a look on our website at the Social Work in the Media survey. This as I said earlier, is a topic dear to my heart. And I really, really passionately believe that the image of social work in the media has a direct bearing on the way that people trust social workers on the doorstep and in practice. So if you get half a chance, please take the survey on the website socialworldpodcast.com. Well, there we are. There's another week. Thanks ever so much for your company. Please tell people about this. Please tell people about the Social World podcast because uh, it's growing and it's your podcast as much as mine. So join in, leave opinions, and see you next week.